Hello, Monetization Nation. More than a decade ago, I consulted for a company named i.tv, where Justin Whitaker served as a top executive. i.tv was the creator of the most downloaded TV Guide app in Apple's App Store. Every month, millions of people used i.tv technology to discover, watch, and engage with television. Justin Whitaker used unpaid influencer marketing for i.tv more effectively than almost any other company I have ever seen. I was so impressed with Justin's efforts and his successes that I've used his model as the example over the years when teaching other people, mostly my consulting clients, about successful influencer marketing. Justin will share his six steps for successful influencer marketing after this intro. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. As I've done consulting over the years, I've used your story at i.tv a lot. And you have used uh, influencer marketing better than I have seen anybody else do it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I'm remembering remembering uh, is that you, uh, before that i.tv first release or one of the very early releases, you went out and you identified hundreds of potential influencers, not just news organizations, but the specific people in those news organizations that wrote about the type of product that you were promoting. Mm -hmm. And you worked to build relationships with those people and then as we had press releases that came out and, and new releases of, of the new builds of the mobile app, you would promote that to the audience. And you did, I remember you telling me how you would do all the work for them. You'd write the release and you'd give them all the images and you'd give them ideas for the stories. You'd, you'd make it as easy as possible for them, you know, to, to do a story on you. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember when I was there, you were getting a hundred mentions for every single time we put out a, a new release of, of that i.tv app right and that drove so much adoption of our product and credibility in the industry and revenue for us i believe when i, I was hired for a short period of time like six months or something to to help monetize and i believe we were able to cut deals with five of the seven top movie studios right um, but that was a direct result of all of the media reach you were being able to get, you know, without that, the monetization wouldn't have even been an option. It, yeah. I think you encapsulated it really well it, for the i.tv story. Um, my, I had just come from working with a PR firm um, right, right before Brad found me um, and we had lunch and just talked basically for a few minutes and I didn't even show him my resume. He just said, do you want to come and join me? And I was like, okay. And I was super excited to do that because I really wanted to get back into starting a company again. Cause I, I had been living in the UK pre previous to that. I finished a master's degree and then for three years after that master's degree, I had started this, this business. And so I kind of got the startup bug. And so starting to work with Brad, starting to work with Brad was kind of like a dream come true for me to have uh, an older, almost father-like figure being a mentor and kind of learning the ropes, but also being able to bring some skills to the table that 
that I had developed um, that ha that had an impact. And so as we got ready for launch, um, exactly like you said, my strategy was, well, I've been working with top tier media for the last while um, at this PR firm. I already know some people, but they are not necessarily the people that would be the ones covering a story like i.tv, which was direct to consumer where everything that I was doing before was, was enterprise enterprise technology. Um, but I knew how to build relationships with reporters. I, I know how to talk to them as, at, at, and treat them like they are influencers. I mean, that was kind of pre the influencer craze, but they really were influencers. And I would, proto-influencers, I would say, uh, to what we understand influencer to be today. And so, like I said, building the relationship with them, a relationship of trust was was really important um, and, and building a, a credible story. So first of all, like, I, th I think it helped that we had a brand like that. It, I, I questioned the decision to have a one letter domain name simply because it was ex super expensive to get it. But I think that was one thing that immediately, it was kind of, uh, it was like, people took us more seriously because of that. I, I saw that again and again. I was, it's kind of surprising how important a brand can be when you don't really have a brand. So let me and, just get there. So you're saying sometimes for young entrepreneurial companies, spending more to buy a domain name that gives you credibility is, is worth it. I think so. It can be, if you have the budget to do it, uh, as somebody who, who ascribes today more to a lean startup, uh, mentality, uh, I, I probably wouldn't do that. The, the company I'm starting right now, um, and go, kind of referencing what you're talking about, maybe personifying a brand, making a brand personal, personal. This next thing that I'm doing, it's Uber for nurses. So oh, it's cool. Uber, Uber sta uh, staffing, kind of like hospital needs a temporary nurse or assisted living. That's what we're doing. And we won a, a pitch competition, um, and we. But what we pitched was a virtual senior living platform, and so I called it Jerry, J E R I, kind of thinking like geriatrics. But I got the hellojerry.com domain name, and as we get started on this, and as I'm starting to talk to potential customers, I'm like, I think it'll be. It, I think that's a pretty. I mean, pretty strong brand to begin with. I mean, I think it will, it, it's gotten a good reaction so far and having a .com domain name is, is important as, as I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with that. I spent most of my career going after really good domain names. That's been my strategy. So I did adoption.com, yeah. I did family.com, I helped do uh, law.com, get that one off the ground. Really? I did today.com, I did um, a whole bunch of them where the domain name gave us a lot of credibility and did make a big difference. I, I echo your comment and yeah. it. Yeah, I actually get helped. So that was one thing. And then, and then, like you mentioned, uh, again, you had described the process really well in approaching these uh, these influencers, these journalists, and reporters and editors. I wanted to make it as easy as possible for them to write something up about us. And I was very find them in the first place before contacting yeah. them. Before contacting them. them. Yeah. And, and talk about the relationship building step as well. So in order to, to get the respect of, of an influencer, I think you have to put yourself in their shoes. 
uh, as much as possible. And one thing I learned in doing public relations is they love it like anybody does when you are familiar with what they, what, with their work, with the things that they care about and the things that they write about. And so I did a lot of kind of like a reporter would. I hit the, pa- the digital pavement, so to say, uh, in researching each and every, almost, almost every reporter that I talked to or, and blogger too. And I kind of, I had tiers, I had three tiers of contacts that I'd go after those, you know, like the top tier being like the top media outlets. And then, you know, the middle tier, just lesser known ones. And then, and then I, I was no respecter of persons when it came to smaller bloggers and smaller influencers. I thought, why not get them all where a lot of PR firms today would probably say, well, let's just go after the big ones because if you go, if you get a couple of big hits, then it'll trickle down. But my strategy was more like, let's go from, let's hit it all, but it, it might even be a ground up thing. Yeah. Yeah. As, as long as you're willing to give some maybe exclusive information to this, to like this New York Times reporter or to this TechCrunch blogger, um, or give them exclusivity that they get to, that, they, that they're under embargo, they get to go first, but everybody else is also pitched. They just are not... Yeah. And if I remember right, your strategy worked. You did get the big publications yeah. covered you just as well. Yeah. It didn't hurt you from, from getting the exposure there. It didn't. It didn't. But we did treat we did give them preferential treatment. So everybody was under embargo. Everybody respected the embargo. We did give preferential treatment to the the, the big guys. But I also treated the smaller guys similarly and, and made Brad as, as our spokesperson available, even to the small guys. And so it, it, it made our mess. It, it helped. I don't, it just helped. That, that's one of the things that helped forge the relationships um, as well. So you wanted me to talk about process and relationship building, right? And how did you find those people in the first place? Oh, how did right, you find right. the right person at New York Times to, that would write about or the right person at TechCrunch instead of just sending an email into their generic you know, editorial, um, whatever. I'll, a combination of things. We had access to a PR database, a, a contact database. So I use that as a starting point to look at which reporters are on which beat. It wasn't a very powerful tool. I still had to do a lot of my own work. So I, but I use it as a starting point, find names, but then I would go to their, the profile on their on their respective websites, whether New York Times or the, or TechCrunch or Engadget, and just confirm that they were the right person to talk to. And one of the best thing, one of the things I found most helpful was maybe writing somebody that I'd worked with previously on other stories, maybe from my information security days, and write them and say, "Hey, who should I be talking to about um, i.tv? It's going to do this and this and this." And then, and they would tell me, oh, you should be talking to so-and-so, you should be talking to Sarah Perez. And that gave me an in. I could then write Sarah Perez and say, hey, Darren Murph told me that you would be the right person to reach out to about this. Here's what we're doing. What, um, would you be interested in a, in a conversation with Brad Pello to talk about this? I love it. 
So you're reaching out to the right person. You're not doing bulk spams. You're trying to build personalized relationships. And then you're offering something really valuable. You're offering an interview with the CEO of your company. Right, right. And then beyond that, when it comes time for, and then after that, I have, I always had a packet of information with graphics and um, quotes and um, logos to send to them to make their story, make story writing easy. Yeah. Uh, but also for the sake of consistent messaging. The idea here was like, let's make sure that when we go out, we're positioning ourselves as the um, TV discovery platform or, or the TV guide app. That's what we were, where we were at first. But then that morphed over time. Like, as you said, this notoriety from, from our launch days, you know, the, the, during the span of maybe a year where we had this cadence of announcement after announcement after announcement, and each one was getting a lot of attention. And we were the first at a bunch of things. That's when we started getting the attention, not just of, like you said, the booking those relationships with movie studios, but then it morphed into i.tv becoming really a, a technology backbone partner for DirecTV, for Nintendo, for TELUS, the Verizon of Canada. And ultimately, uh, like all these relationships came because they'd seen something about us in the press. Talk about what you did for those influencers to make their job as easy as possible. I've given them basically a tiny story to write. Like I'd almost write it for them. Um, I'd have a quote from the CEO and then have a list of features um, and why, and so a list of features that we were announcing and then messaging around why this is important, maybe a paragraph or two around that. So they could just copy and paste. And often I saw it was just like copied and pasted verbatim with little, with bookends on either end of the article. So does that um, hurt you with your, um, like the Google duplicate content police, you know, if, I don't if think they're so. publishing articles that are saying the same thing, I guess it doesn't matter if it's going out in their publication, it's getting reached and you're not doing it for SEO value necessarily. Yeah. Right, right. That's a good point. I didn't see that. I, but we were, we also weren't looking for it. But I also, I also didn't see it. Like I just saw the quotes copied and pasted, and oh, gotcha. let, not the full yeah, article. It, yeah, not not the whole thing. I wouldn't try and write an article for them, but I would try and give them as at least a framework to work with. And sometimes it would include something that could be turned an article, but most of the time it was just like. Here's the bare information that you can just cut and paste into your, into your piece. Nice. So in, the, in this conversation today, we've talked about a few different monetization vehicles. Mm-hmm. And you, when I worked with you, you worked a lot with mobile apps. And with, with this i.tv app, you know, obviously there was an ad-supported model. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, maybe a sponsorship model where, where people might have paid us to get their trailers out there, movie studios. Maybe there was a, a licensing model where people paid you, uh, B2B companies paid you to uh, use your software to, to power their platform or whatever. Um, you wanna talk a little bit about monetization models and what, what, are, what are the monetization models you've seen? Which one, what are the good and the bad of those different monetization models? What, what advice do you have? Well, advertising 
is uh, such is so attractive. It can be so attractive in the context of IDOT. It, it was because we thought, wow, we we are on our way to building a big a big audience, and as long as we can drive engagement, great. Uh, what we found over time was that all the social TV and engagement was actually happening on Twitter and Facebook, and there was no way to bring them into a dedicated um, application at the scale that you would need to make that work. So I, I, I think that advertising um, in that way is, is a hard sale. Sponsorships, on the other hand, I mean, we did bring in money. You saw that. And we continue to do that as well. Like they would do, we would have clients come in and talk to me and want to do, you know, a takeover of the app. And we, we did, you know, over the course of the company, we always had some kind of ad space that we could sell. I'm a big believer in getting people to pay for your service, though. I, I don't feel burned by the i.tv experience, but I'm now very wary of trying to, or, or thinking that, like there are very few companies that are going to, that are going to strike gold um, and be like Facebook or Twitter and have the kind of audience that you can monetize in that way. Yep. So um, at yours.co, um, I was happy to play around, even though our products there were just marginally successful. I was, I was happy to like really dive deep into the subscription model. Yep. Um, and then a radiant, uh, Brad, like the consumer side of things, I kept on wondering, how is this going to be monetized? And they had a bunch of ideas, but again, it was people getting people to pay for content. I was much happier to be on the B2B side and think about licensing and subscriptions. So I'm a big fan of subscriptions. Yeah. Um, what we're doing with Jerry is it will be a, it will be a mostly transaction based model. A lot, again, a lot like Uber, but we'll charge, um, you know, a, a CNA gets paid you know, $13 an hour and we'll charge $19 an hour to the hospital or assisted living to, to employ that person. Um, yeah, and we'll, love it. You, you got that recurring revenue built in. Yeah, we'll have that recurring revenue. It won't be a subscription, but it will be regular recurring yeah. revenue and, and there's enough demand. And I'm like, I think this is going to work. So, yeah. I'm such yeah. a believer in that recurring revenue stream that I, I will not build another business again unless there's a recurring revenue stream yeah. to it. Without that, it just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't, it doesn't. And ads are okay as gravy money, right? But you can't build a business on an ad supported model. Right. It's too hard. A few people have made it work when they have ridiculous amounts of reach. Mm -hmm. um, but until you reach that spot, it's, it's really, really difficult to do. It, it is. Yeah, I agree. One of these tectonic shifts we're talking about in the book is video marketing. Mm -hmm. You guys obviously did a lot with video with i.tv and movie trailers and things like that. And yours.co as well. We did a lot. Okay. We worked with Harmon Brothers a lot. Okay. Can you tell me about... Uh, any stories related to video marketing when people did video marketing and it worked really well and any secrets you'd like to share with that? So your co when I joined, I was part of a turnaround plan. Um, and the company was called MDisc at the time. Have you ever heard of MDisc? Mm -hmm. They built, um, they had this proprietary optical disc technology, Blu-rays and DVDs that would keep your data safe for a thousand years. And the, like the story of MDisc, when I got there, it was like five or six years old. It was crazy. They had like 400 individual investors. Um, and 
it was it was kind of a mess. But what I was brought in to do was to transition it from a physical products manufacturing company to a software service company CEO and the director of marketing at the time um, felt like there's an opportunity for us to go all digital if we can get people to archive data on disks. And so they had this idea for what we call the archive service, where you could take the data that you have stored in the cloud and keep it stored in the cloud, but also have an archival copy on, on permanent media that we would store in a storage vault in the everlasting hills. And at least then you would always have a copy of your photos and videos and any, and any documents that you think are important. And when I joined, I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, but what we discovered as we were developing that product and I was in charge of product was that people were mostly archiving videos and photos. But one day I presented the CEO with this idea of like, cause we were, we, what we realized the marketing guy had a really good insight. Um, he said, it's like we're trying to sell people broccoli when they really want to eat cake. They're, they're archiving their videos and photos. What if we could do something interesting with that? And I came up with this idea to transform those videos and photos into home movies that we'd stream back to the customers. And, and by the way, the archive service is actually kind of popular with a niche subset of the market. Like people are really into archiving data. Maybe it was the prepper crowd that we were tap tapping into a little bit, okay. um, but it wasn't big enough to build a big business. And oh, going back to video marketing, we created with the Harmon Brothers, a video campaign that was really effective at scaring the crap out of people with about their data. So, and I, I, I'll, I'll see if that, if those assets are still out there. Um, I think they are, but what it was is people telling their stories about how they lost important data. And so there were tears and these are real people, tears flowing down their cheeks. Like one guy talking about how, it was like the last few moments with his, or last couple of months with his dad, he had recorded all these conversations on video. Um, you know, something happened with his phone and he lost it all. He starts crying on the video. And so we thought that that would be a really good way to get people to buy the service. But Harmon Brothers did their, their part. They said to us, and, and kind of going to what, what are the pitfalls? They said, we'll take you on as a client but usually we, we perform really well with physical products and, um, and also products that are not as early as yours. And it wasn't that it wasn't refined, but it just wasn't a thing in, in people's minds yet. And so it was an uphill battle and eventually led to a pivot. So long story, that, that thing that I introduced, like streaming people's memories back to them on, via video and transforming their their photos and videos, we, we, we totally shifted the business into that, like making a Netflix for your home movies where we would take your photos and videos, run them through a, an API that would put them to music and, and add transitions and effects. And we tested with customers and it was like, I've never seen anything like that in user testing where, where they're like clapping and laughing and almost crying because they were reliving these really special moments of their lives. So we did another video campaign with the Harmon Brothers and we started to get some traction um, with that. 
And, but it was totally different. We, instead of trying to scare people, we had the candy to sell them, the cake to sell them instead of the broccoli. And so it was more of like the typical Harmon Brothers fun type of creative. Thank you so much, Justin, for sharing your stories and strategies about influencer marketing with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from today's episode. Number one, find hundreds of targeted influencers and their contact info through research and subscribing to databases. Number two, include reporters who write about our niche as influencers and treat them like influencers. Number three, build individual relationships with influencers by providing value in a meaningful way. Get familiar with their work, comment and share their content. Number four, build credibility with the influencers. Number five, make it as easy as we can for the influencers. Number six, provide value to the end user by creating content the users want to read instead of an advertorial. Number seven, try to establish long-term win-win relationships with influencers. One of the best ways to ensure promotion from an influencer lasts a long time is to set up an affiliate program and pay influencers a commission based on the sales generated from their promotion. Number eight, we should try to pay influencers a rate that will motivate them to promote us for a long time instead of trying to pay as little as we can. Number nine, we might find success by working with a ground up influencer model, trying to work with all of the targeted influencers and not just the biggest ones. If we desire monetization we have never before achieved, we must leverage strategies we have never before implemented. I challenge each of us to pick one thing that resonated with us from today's episode and schedule a time this week to implement it to help us achieve our monetization goals. Did you like today's episode? If so, please visit monetizationnation.com to sign up for our email list and receive great monetization articles, videos, and podcasts. Can you share an example you've seen of effective influencer marketing? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.